take your Bibles out for a moment and just look with me at 1 Peter 3.15. One verse here. Uh, Peter writes, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I said one verse, I read three, right? But anyway, good to see everybody tonight. I wasn't quite expecting this. thought there'd be a good turnout. I didn't realize there'd be this turnout. But anyway, uh, it's a subject, no doubt, in the news a lot. I mean, Americans want to know. Uh, who are these people moving among us from around the world? Can we understand more about their doctrine and theology and way of life? And what motivates the Muslim to do some of what they do? By the way, you might hear it spelled Muslim, M-O-S, or Muslim, M-U-S. They themselves uh, want you to say Muslim. In fact, they, uh, the old standard until, I guess, in the 80s was Muslim, they take offense at that now because it reminds them of some other things, um, derogatory terms in their language. So Muslim uh, is what they prefer. Uh, let me start out by giving some great resources. Right up the road from us at the Summit Church in Durham, uh, Dr. J.D. Greer. Some of you are familiar with J.D. Greer. Uh, he is... Uh, gaining a lot of popularity in the American church today. Uh, Logan Dagley, who used to be in our fellowship, is one of the worship pastors there at one of the Summit Church locations. One of the easier books on this topic is Breaking the Islam Code by J.D. Greer. And in that book, as he'll tell you right up front, he's going to focus a lot on his, his interest is getting you to the point that um, sharing with the Muslim and introducing them to Christ. I mean, he's going to get into doctrine and all that, yes, but his main point is getting us to the point that we're ready to, to share the gospel with them. Again, he lived in a Muslim nation for a number of years and uh, worked among the Muslims. Uh, excellent, excellent book, under uh, Breaking the Islam Code. Uh, probably one of the better books you'll find, more comprehensive on their theology and way of life, Answering Islam by Norman Geisler and Abdul Salib. And Abdul Salib is a fake name to protect his identity. He's a Muslim who has come to faith in Christ. But uh, that is probably one of the more comprehensive books that I would recommend to you on this subject. Uh, these two books, very heavily used in the presentation tonight. Uh, Nelson's Illustrated Guide to Religions, James Beverly, has a great section in this book on Muslims and on the Islamic faith. I highly recommend that. Excellent, excellent treatment of it. An old classic. Uh, it's been around for years, The Kingdom of the Cults by Dr. Walter Martin. And he'll, you know, he's very upfront at the beginning of his chapter on Islam. Islam is not a cult. But because of the growing interest in it and just people wanting to know more about it and its rapid growth in America, uh, he has included a section uh, in this book on Islam. Uh, Walter Martin, if, if you want to study Mormonism, Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, any of the cults, that's, that's, a, that's an old classic. So any of those books, uh, if, you want, if you want a little 15-minute read book, actually they do a pretty good job. Uh, Bruce and Stan's Pocket Guide to Islam. This is just a real quick uh, thumbnail sketch of Islam. And, and again, it just it takes no time to read it. It covers a number of different subjects. 
And I think some of you would benefit greatly from that. So any of those, uh, Dr. James White is a Baptist pastor and theologian out in Phoenix. Uh, He is a Reformed Baptist uh, pastor, Phoenix Reformed Baptist Church, and very much on the speaking circuit around the world on Islam. And on YouTube, tons and tons of videos and debates and stuff of that nature that Dr. James White uh, has. Probably the two I would recommend to you, a two-part one, it's Islam A to Z. Islam A to Z. And each one of those videos, I think, is about an hour and a half or two hours long. So, But anyway, uh, very, very prolific writer and speaker on this subject. Let me begin tonight with the introduction. And you notice I've got, uh, got a guy climbing a ladder up to heaven uh, under his own efforts, climbing rung by rung, and I hope that will become clearer to you later on. I'll try to be more specific about it when we talk about uh, salvation in the Islamic mind. But uh, under the introduction tonight, and Jonathan, is there, I don't guess I can see what's on there right here tonight, can I? You didn't turn? I'll just keep looking back. That's okay. Uh, now, it's, it's okay. In, in the first lesson tonight, uh, while I will mention some theological items as we briefly pass over a few things, That's not my primary purpose tonight. We'll get more into that next week. Uh, The purpose of tonight is to, first of all, help us to understand who Muslims are and to set the table for us on the basic tenets of their faith. So understanding who they are and just setting the table on the basic tenets of their faith. That's mainly what we're going to go over tonight. Tonight is basically to say, here is who the typical Muslim is and some of the very basic things he believes and he does. Now, I think before we get into a lot of other stuff, we first of all need to know their identity. And please understand something tonight, okay? I am not a Muslim scholar. Don't claim to be. You may very well ask me a question tonight afterwards that I will have absolutely no clue how to answer and you and I will have to go and find the answer together. Okay? I want you to know that up front. You know, I think of the prophet Amos in the Old Testament. Remember what Amos said on one occasion to folks when when they didn't like his preaching? He said, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Remember Amos saying that? Well, uh, let me change that tonight. I'm not a Muslim scholar nor the son of a Muslim scholar, okay? Okay. I may very well be talking to somebody in here tonight that you are much more qualified than me on this subject, much more well-read. Very likely somebody like that's in here tonight. Maybe since 9-11, you've just immersed yourself in reading and studying everything you can possibly know about Muslims. Might be talking about somebody in here tonight who's even come out of a Muslim background. But I think with all we're seeing in the world, whether it has to do with 9-11, whether it has to do with Fort Hood or Paris or San Bernardino or Indonesia this past week uh, or West Africa over the weekend, there is a growing interest in Muslims and what they believe. Now, by the way, the last statement I just made, you may not know, the most uh, populated Muslim nation in the world is not in the Middle East. You realize that, right? The most populated Muslim nation in the world is where? Indonesia, that's right, Indonesia. Uh, 
Most Muslims worldwide would be of Asian or Indian type descent or heritage. And as they're attacking and killing people, one thing we've got to, as some of them are attacking and killing people, one thing that we've got to realize while some of the radical Muslims are attacking and killing Westerners, they're attacking and killing one another even more. And we need to recognize that most Muslims are not not a part of this killing. Most would be opposed to it, while at the same time, their whole system of thought and belief makes allowance for it. That's the kind of wiggly thing or gray area that we need to understand. And if you pick up uh, Norman Geisler's book, he's got a section in the back on that. Uh, great section uh, in the back on the surahs and the different verses in the surahs. Some say there's 109 verses. Some say as many as 164 verses. In the, there's 114 surahs, like our chapters in the Bible, 114 surahs that make up the Quran, which is a little bit shorter than our, the whole Quran, a little bit shorter than our New Testament. And some would say 164 verses in there that certainly give the radicals the justification of doing what they are doing. Uh, and, and Geisler mentions the more moderate Muslims, they, they, need to, they need to address that. They need to speak about that. And I'll have more to say about that later. There are some key things to understanding the Muslim faith that are essential. What is absolutely primary in Islam is a total belief in Allah, the Arabic term for God. A total, absolute belief in Allah. Muslims also believe that Allah has spoken to the world through Muhammad, the final, ultimate, and greatest prophet according to Islam. Many Muslims believe that he was sinless, though Muhammad never claimed this for himself. In fact, he actually claimed the opposite. In Surah 41.6, he said, I am but a man like you. But modern Muslims, uh, many of them believe he was sinless and they pattern every single area of their life after what Muhammad did, what he said, how he dressed, how he responded to threats himself, the different things he carried out. The reverence that Muslims give to Muhammad is hard for us to overestimate. Now, Muslims don't believe he was divine. But anybody who cast any sort of insult uh, against Muhammad, we've seen what they will do. Uh, some of the radical Muslims, we, the, the cartoon drawers, uh, uh, other people who have cast insults about Muhammad... Um, many of these folks have their very lives threatened. And so again, just, just the reverence that they pay to Muhammad is, is hard for us uh, to overestimate. A, a third thing we need to understand about the Muslim faith that's essential, the Quran is pivotal to all Muslims. This is the holy book of Muslims. It should be recited in Arabic. Okay? It should be recited in Arabic. If you tell a Muslim friend that you've read the Quran, but you've read it in English, quite frankly, they're not going to think much of that. They believe it's got to be read and recited in Arabic and memorized and studied, but never questioned. Never questioned. 
Fourth thing we need to understand that's essential. Islam is a religion of law. Islam is a religion of law. Islamic law extends to every conceivable area of life. Sharia is the Arabic term for way or path. And Muslims believe that Islamic law is God's law or God's way. Now the scope of Sharia is quite amazing to most non-Muslims. There have been fatwas, F-A-T-W-A-S, fatwas or rulings on many topics including what directions should be faced when one is using the bathroom. When does swallowing thick dust make fasting void? How much is owed Allah in almsgiving if a Muslim owns 61 camels? And so every little detail of Islamic life is dictated by various fatwas or rulings uh, that come out of Sharia law based on what the Quran says uh, or the Hadith, the Hadith, other sayings of Muhammad that they listen to in addition to the Quran. Now Muhammad and, and, and likewise many Muslims today have no concept or appreciation for the American model of the separation of church and state. You see, ideally in Islam, and what they fight for is a total and complete theocracy under Allah where every single aspect of life is closely governed and controlled. Now, contrary to popular opinion, Muslims do not believe that their religion originated with Muhammad. In fact, they assert that Islam started at creation when God created Adam and Eve. And that Islam was the religion of faithful Jews and Christians. And so Jews in the time of Moses, they would say, were actually Muslims. And Christians in the time of Jesus were also Muslims. Muslims do not believe in original sin as Christians do. Muslims believe that Adam rebelled against God's law in the Garden of Eden, as is taught by most Christian groups, but there was no fall of the human race. Humans are frail, yes. They're weak, yes. They're subject and even prone to temptation, yes. But they are not predisposed to sin. They come into this world with a clean slate. Sort of sounds like the Pelagian heresy in early Christianity, doesn't it? Islam's emphasis on the majesty and the sovereignty of Allah cannot be overestimated, as I mentioned earlier. Islam teaches that our universe is the home to angels, devils, and jinns, J-I-N-N-S. Jinns would be spirit beings that are capable of either good or evil. Islam has some very definite views about the day of judgment. Am I going too fast? Is this okay? Do I need to go faster? No? Okay. Islam has some very definite views about the day of judgment. Allah will bring the world to an end and humans will be judged on the basis of one's what? One's deeds. One's good will be put on a scale, on balances. One's good will be put there, and then one's bad will be put on the other side. Hopefully one's good will outweigh the bad, and one can enter paradise. It's works-oriented. Hence the latter on the screen. 
The only assurance one can have of paradise is if one gives one's life in jihad. Whoa, okay. Was that me? Now, also, jihad has two meanings. Now, I know what we think one meaning of jihad is, but there's another meaning of it too. The first meaning, does anybody know what that would be? Any guesses on, on what the, the first aspect maybe of jihad would be? Hmm? No, now that's, that's the concept we Westerners most think of. The internal struggle that one has. The internal struggle that one has. The struggle against evil and temptation inside of one. Uh, but it's taken on another meaning for which it's better known, and that's the fight against all who are non-Muslim. Muslims also fight and kill against those who do not hold to their brand of Islam. And I'm going to talk in a moment about the different factions within Islam and, and the struggle even between the different factions. Now, the Muslim view of Jesus is much different than the Bible. They claim that he was a prophet of Islam. For Muslims, Jesus is, is not the Son of God and that he's not divine. He did not die on the cross. He was switched out and it was Judas who died. His death is not a sacrifice, was not a sacrifice for sin. He was not put in a tomb and raised from the dead. They do, however, believe that Jesus went to heaven when he died, years after attempts to have him crucified failed. They also believe that he was born of the Virgin Mary. They do believe that he was holy. They do believe that he taught with great wisdom and love and that he performed many miracles. It's incomprehensible to the Muslim to, to call somebody the son of God. That would be an insult to Allah. I'll talk more about at the end about how, the problems they have with the, the doctrine of the Trinity. But for Allah to have a son in their way of thinking would mean that Allah literally had to have sex with a woman. And that is just reprehensible to them. They can't even conceive of that. And, and I'll, again, I'll say more about that when I talk about um, the Christian's view of the Trinity and some of the struggles they have. Let's talk secondly about Muslim factions. When we say Islam, I want you to understand that all Muslims, like I told you this morning, are not a monolithic group any more than Christians would not be a monolithic group. Among Christians, we've got Catholics, we've got Protestants, and among Protestants, we've got all kinds of different branches of, of Protestants. Uh, Christians aren't. you got liberal, you got conservative. We're not a monolithic group. They're not a monolithic group. So there are different factions within Islam. Islam is divided into two major sects. Uh, S-E-C-T-S. Two major sects. What are, the, what are the two major sects? Sunnis and Shiites. Okay? Now, by far, Sunnis are the greatest number. Some, some say Sunnis uh, make up 80% of all Muslims. Some, some scholars say Sunnis are 90%, 90% of all Muslims in the world, Sunnis. 
So hands down, no contest, Sunnis are the major group. Now, these sects arose over a political dispute as to who should be the first caliph or the first successor to Muhammad. Having failed to appoint a successor before his death, Sunnis believed that Muhammad's successor should be elected. The Shiites, on the other hand, insisted that the successor should come from the bloodline of Muhammad. Now this would have meant that Ali, A-L-I, Ali, Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law, was the only legitimate successor to the prophet. And therefore the Shiites reject the legitimacy of the first three caliphs of Islam and view them as people who deliberately deprived Ali of his divine rights. Now while radicals are a part of both Sunnis and Shiites, the Shiites are more end-of-the-world apocalyptic. They, they believe in imams, Imams who, in addition to Muhammad, serve as infallible guides for modern-day Muslims. Now, now, I should say both Sunnis and Shiites believe in imams, but to the Sunni, the imam is the cleric at the local mosque who leads in prayer and preaches the sermon. To the Shiite, the imam carries a bit more clout. A true imam would be a direct descendant of Ali, I, I, get, I struggled for a comparison. I guess the Shiite would view an imam maybe the way, and I might stand corrected on this, but maybe the way a Catholic would view a pope. The way a Catholic would view a pope versus the way a Baptist would view their pastor. That would maybe be the differences in how the Sunnis and Shiites view an imam. The Shiites believe that a series of true imams has appeared and that the twelfth imam did not die. He was taken away and he will return to earth as the Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I, the Mahdi or the Muslim Savior. He'll usher in the last judgment. Now the Shiites believe that they can usher in or speed up the arrival of the Mahdi with cataclysmic, destructive events. Sunnis also believe in the coming of the Mahdi. Sunnis also believe in the coming of the Mahdi. They, they, just, they just believe he's not come yet. So again, the difference is Shiites believe he was here, he's taken away, he's coming back. Sunnis would say he just hasn't come yet. Now, Muslims believe that when the Mahdi comes, Jesus is going to come with him. But Jesus is going to be more like a John the Baptist figure who's going to point people to the Mahdi. And Jesus will help the Mahdi defeat all evil. Now, who makes up the primary Shiite nation today? And this is one of your blanks on your page. Major Shiite nation today is who? Iran. Iran is the major Shiite nation. Again, they are the more doomsday apocalyptic brand, if you will. Now, folks, think about something here. Just, just think about something. What's the world giving them? Nuclear capabilities. Not very smart. Again, this is the group that believes in some type of huge conflict and destruction of everything so that they can usher the 12th imam back. Now that's one of the problems when political leaders on both sides of the aisle don't understand theology, the theology of different groups. 
Theology shapes behavior. Theology matters. Personally, I think what, that, what makes this even harder for us in the West to wrap our brains around is the anemia of our theology connected to life. Sadly, in modern-day Christianity today, somebody might go to church, go to Sunday school, go to church. Go home, and that week their theology might not have any impact on the choices they make or their lifestyle or their relationships. That's kind of where we are today, isn't it, in modern-day Christianity, sad to say. So many people's theology on Monday morning really doesn't impact their life. Not so to the Muslim. Not so. For the dedicated Muslim. Islam, as I'll point out later, is a way of life that dictates everything. It's not just your life at the mosque. Because again, in Islam, there's no separation between church and state or social activity. It is all under the theocracy of Allah. That's why in Muslim areas, there is Sharia law that dictates just about every single thing about life. And and again, we'll talk more later about Sharia law. Now, a third big faction in uh, Islam... Can, can somebody name the third big group? Who's the third group? The Sufis, yes. They number about 240 million, the Sufis. Now, this is the mystical wing of Islam. These are Muslims seeking after a more direct personal relationship with Allah. Now, historically, Sufism has been very missionary and has helped the spread of Islam across the globe. Now, Sufi doctrine conflicts with much in fundamental Islam. In traditional, ordinary Muslim doctrine... Allah is completely transcendent and removed from us in all things. You can't know him. Tawid, T-A-W-H-I-D, Tawid. Allah is just transcendent. He's out there. He's other than us. You can't know him. He's distant. But in Sufi doctrine, the goal is to obtain uh, divinehood and be absorbed into Allah. Sufism, in other words, is, is rather pantheistic. That God is in all things and all things are in Him. And so the goal is annihilationism or fana, F-A-N-N-A. Fana or annihilation in Sufi doctrine where you are absorbed into Allah and you cease to exist. Now in addition to the Sunnis, the Shiites and the Sufis you have other minor groups. You have the Wahhabis. The Wahhabis would be one of those factions. They're primarily in what country? Saudi Arabia. Good class. I tell you what, a lot of you, one of you, y'all that are chiming in, somebody else needs to come up here and teach this. Y'all are good tonight. I'm serious. Now, the Wahhabis are a very strong, legalistic, fundamentalist faction. Who was there main character in America's view that we know. Osama bin Laden. That's one of your blanks. Osama bin Laden was a Wahhabi. Then you have the Druze, the D-R-U-Z-E sect, primarily located in Lebanon and Syria and northern Palestine. You have the Alawite 
A-L-A-W-I-T-E sect, mostly in Syria. The Ahmadiyyas are a heretical Muslim group from Pakistan whose founder claimed to be the promised Mahdi. Now beyond these major and minor sects, Islam has spawned other religions. Sikhism, S-I-K-H-I-S-M, in India. Uh, Baha'i, B-A-H-A apostrophe I, that has temples scattered around the globe. Also, you have the Nation of Islam led by Louis Farrakhan. Now, it is considered a heresy by Orthodox Islam. It claims that there is a prophet after Muhammad, namely Elijah Muhammad. They're sort of their own group that does their own thing. Again, a heretical group. So that's some of the factions you need to understand. Third thing I want us to talk about tonight, Islam's beginning history. Islam's beginning history. Let's go back and, and cover the story of Islam. Muhammad ibn Abdallah was born in A.D. 570 into a prominent family in the city of Mecca, Arabia, now Saudi Arabia. His father died before he was born and his mother died when he was six. He was raised by his uncle and he married a 40-year-old wealthy widow uh, named, uh, I guess you would say her name, uh, Khadija, when he was just 25. She was 40, he was 25. They settled in Mecca and Muhammad became a successful businessman. Now, at the time, the Arabs surrounding Muhammad were very polytheistic and very idolatrous. And Muhammad rejected their polytheism and their idolatry, and he came to believe in only one God, Allah or Allah, a name that means the God. Now, Muhammad would regularly slip outside of Mecca to a cave, and he would fast and pray. In 610, when Muhammad was 40 years old, he claims to have received the first of a series of mystical visions or revelations that changed his life and, as we know, have made quite an impact on the world. Now, initially, Muhammad felt that the source of his visions and revelations might be demonic. But his wife convinced him otherwise. She convinced him that he was hearing from God. Muhammad came to believe, eventually believed, that he was hearing from the angel Gabriel. Now for two years, Muhammad kept quiet about his, rev uh, about his revelations and visions. And then in 612, he felt compelled to preach and he began gaining converts. For the next 20 years until his death in 632, he attracted more followers and he began to recite his revelations to his disciples for them to write down because he himself could neither read nor write. But, I mean, that was kind of common for that day. But he recited things to others. Now, Muslims believe that in 620, one year after the death of Muhammad's first wife, the angel Gabriel brought Muhammad by night to Jerusalem on the back of a heavenly horse. And there in Jerusalem, Muhammad conversed with Jesus, with Moses, and with Abraham. The Quran says that then Muhammad and his angel companion were taken by ladder to the seventh heaven. Muslims believe that the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem is built on the spot from where Muhammad ascended. Now eventually his followers compiled these recitations down into a book called the Quran, which means recitation or reciting or reading. And that's one of your blanks to fill in. 
Now, the people of Mecca, remember, very polytheistic, very idolatrous. They were opposed to Muhammad and his new teachings. And so in 622, he fled to a city later known as Medina. Medina meaning the city of the prophet. Now, Muhammad's flight was known as the Hegira, H-E-G-I-R-A. Muslims today hold the Hegira in such high regard that A.D. 622 actually marks the beginning of the Islamic calendar. The years since then, since 622, are, are counted as A.H., or the year of the Hegira. Now, the people of Medina tried to fight Muhammad also unsuccessfully. Uh, Muhammad built a mosque there in Medina. He formed a government there in Medina that set rules for every area of life, whether it was religious, political, or social. Now, the people of Mecca resurfaced with an army to try and destroy Muhammad, but he defeated them instead, and he conquered Mecca in A.D. 630. He destroyed all the idols in their main temple with the exception of the Kaaba, the black stone where Muslims believe Abraham was tempted to sacrifice Ishmael. If you've ever seen the pictures of the Hajj, the, the march to Mecca, and we'll talk about that under the five pillars of Islam later, but uh, where you see these I mean, it just looks like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Mus Muslims, tens of thousands, in an arena there in Mecca. And there's a big black box in the middle. That's the Kaaba, where they believe that Abraham was tempted to sacrifice, not Isaac, but Ishmael is what they hold to. <clears throat> the Kaaba in Mecca is the most holy shrine in Islam. It's the place where all Muslims face to direct their prayers. Now, fourthly, let's cover Islam's doctrines. Islam's doctrines. There are five main doctrines in Islam, and I'm not talking about the five pillars. Again, we'll cover the five pillars in a moment. But let's think of the five doctrines. First of all, God. Doctrine number one, God. There's only one God and his name is Allah. That's the most common creed of Islam which is recited daily in what language? In Arabic by all Muslims even if they don't know Arabic. They memorize it in Arabic and they recite it in Arabic. Uh, they, they, they memorize, I tell you what folks, uh, like I said a moment ago, the Quran, a uh, little shorter than our New Testament, it's not uncommon for even Muslim, ch Muslim children even have all of the Quran, uh, many of them have all of the Quran memorized from cover to cover. Uh, so they, uh, they memorize it, they recite it back from memory that... Uh, there's only one God and his name is Allah and they add to it and Muhammad is his prophet. Second doctrine, angels. Angels are messengers of Allah. Gabriel is the chief angel. There is a fallen angel, Shaitan, as well as followers of Shaitan called jinns. Third doctrine, sacred scriptures. Muslims believe Allah has revealed himself through four books. The Torah of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, which God gave to Moses. The Zabur, or the Psalms of David. The Injil which is the Gospels in the New Testament. And finally, there is the Quran, which they believe supersedes all of the previous. And again, also the Hadith, um, the sayings of Muhammad. 
Fourth doctrine, prophets. The Quran names more than 20 prophets, including six who are held in the highest regard. These would be Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. Now they believe Muhammad to be the last and the greatest prophet who came to clear up all misunderstandings and corruptions in Judaism and Christianity. Fifth doctrine, last things. Islam places great emphasis on the day of judgment. The dead will be resurrected and Allah will judge all people based on their works and people will be sent to either heaven or hell. In, in one surah, it talks about hell being so bad that as, as your flesh is being burned up and disintegrated, Allah keeps replacing your flesh for all of eternity. Over and over and over and over again, as soon as your flesh uh, is consumed, he just replaces it. And so over and over and over and over and over again, you go through the agony of that. Now, what about their concept of Allah? We hear that Allah and the God of the Old Testament are one and the, and the same. Did you hear about the article of the Wheaton University professor here recently that calls the storm, the uh, storm in evangelical Christianity and was disciplined by Wheaton because she came out, she dressed in the Muslim garb and said, oh, we, just, we all serve the same God, God the, the Christian's God and Allah one and the same. Now, on the surface, as far as Muslims having a concept of one sovereign God, just like us, on the surface, one would think that Allah and God are one and the same. But folks, as you go deeper, you see that this is not really the case. Muslims have what they call 99 beautiful names for Allah which they must memorize. 99 beautiful names for Allah. Now each name describes a characteristic of Allah. Now you might be surprised to learn that love is not one of the 99 beautiful names. There is no concept of Allah loving mankind. True, he might love the faithful Muslim, but as far as loving mankind in general, no. No. For God so loved the world, no. First John 4, 8 in the New Testament, on the, on, in, on the other hand, says what? God is love. Allah loves those that he deems good or worthy. Now the Bible points out that we've sinned and that while we were yet sinners, while we were unworthy, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for the ungodly. Next blank on your page. Islam means what? Submission. Again, there's no concept except by the Sufi that you can actually know Allah. They may know about him, but they cannot know him. No such thing as a relationship with Allah. In, in fact, folks, let me say it stronger than that, okay? Muslims take offense at the thought that you can know God and have a personal relationship with Him. Because to the, to the Islamic mind, this would make God, in their way of thinking, this would make God dependent on His creation in some way. But Allah doesn't reveal Himself. He only reveals his desires and his wishes. The typical Muslim doesn't even try to know Allah. It's not a concept that they even embrace. 
They only do their prayers and their deeds out of submission to Allah. Now, on the other hand, the Bible says God has revealed himself chiefly to us in his son. God's not just transcendent. God is also what? Imminent. Emmanuel, God with us. The God of the Bible is described as our shepherd. Jesus is the vine that we can be connected to. We can enjoy a relationship with him as our heavenly father, like a father with a child. And so obviously when you dig deeper, the God of the Bible and Allah of the Muslim can't be referring to the same personality. As I alluded to earlier, Muslims totally reject the concept of the Trinity in Christianity. They, they, they don't even seem to understand it. They believe, they are convinced that we are worshiping three gods. Now, of course, the doctrine of the Trinity is that the Godhead is made up of three distinct personalities, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Muslim doesn't comprehend this. And they do not believe that Allah could ever have a son. Because again, that would imply that he came here and he had sex with a woman. Five pillars of Islam. What's the first one? Anybody know? Y'all been real good about this. Come on, class. Anybody? Shahada. Shahada. And I can't promise you that I'm saying all of these words the way they would say them. It's up there. S H A H A D A. S H A H A D A. This is their confession of faith, okay? This is the first pillar of Islam. Again, they say it in Arabic. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. It must be said in Arabic. They consider this the entry point into Islam. When somebody is ready to say the Shahada and say it in sincerity from heart that this is what they believe, they consider you then at that point a Muslim. That's the entry point. Then there's Salat, S-A-L-A-T, prayer. All All Muslims are to pray five times per day facing Mecca, the holiest city. Now, if you don't know the direction of Mecca, they allow one to use their best judgment. And they consider it the intent of the heart that you mean to be facing Mecca. There's the morning prayer, which is to take place between dawn and just before sunrise. There is the noon prayer to be said sometime between when the sun reaches its zenith and mid-afternoon. There's the afternoon prayer to occur between mid-afternoon and just before sunset. There's the evening prayer to be offered just after sunset or up till an hour and a half later. And there's the night prayer which can be said anywhere from an hour and a half after sunset through till the next day's dawn. How many have been in a Muslim country and heard the call to prayer? You've heard that, okay. You know, one of the reasons they blast that over the speakers, you say it's just to notify all the Muslims it's time for that, that call to prayer, right? Well, that's part of it. They believe if you're not a Muslim, just by hearing that, that some kind of mystical power or magical power, you will be drawn to Allah and become a Muslim. So that's another purpose in blasting it. Zakat, tithing. 
Muslims must give financially to the poor and the needy. This involves giving at least 2.5% of their total wealth. Now, this is an obligation. This is not considered charity. Anything over the 2.5% is considered charity. This is obligation. Psalm would be fasting during the holy month of Ramadan. Muslims are to refrain from food, water, and sex from sunrise to sunset. Now folks, think for a moment about Muslims in desert climates fasting and going without water all day. You've got to give them credit, if nothing else, for their dedication. Ramadan in 2015 ran from mid-June mid to mid-July. It's 11 days earlier every year because their calendar is 354 days as opposed to ours. And they calculate it based on cycles of the sun and moon, and so there'll be some slight differences even in different parts of the world. Now, at the end of Ramadan, they celebrate a big feast. Now, concerning food in general, many Muslims obey food laws in much the same way that Orthodox Jews observe um, kosher dietary laws. The Arabic term halal, H-A-L-A-L, refers to food that Muslims are allowed to eat, while the term haram, H-A-R-A-M, applies to forbidden food. Even in markets, have you been in some towns, even in markets where they'll say halal? It's, it's halal, it's, it's, there's clean food for Muslims. Now, Muslims cannot eat pork products and they're not supposed to drink alcohol. Hajj, H-A-J-J. As far as possible, and I'm almost done here if you're looking at your watch. Uh, as far as possible, at least once in a lifetime, Muslims are to travel to Mecca to engage in rituals of prayer and worship at the central shrine in Islam's holiest city. Uh, this takes place each year just over two months after the end of Ramadan. And every year about two million Muslims make that journey. The Hajj ends with a celebratory feast also. I guess in some ways, in that regard, I guess they're a little bit like Baptists, right? We love to eat, right? At the end of some big event, eat. Now, to carry out the five pillars with, with the fifth just being somewhat out there in the future makes one a Muslim in their view. Just do those five things. Just do those five things. For many Muslims, it's rather matter of fact. Just practice the five pillars of Islam. Cut and dry. Do this. Check the box. You're Muslim. In, in their view. Just, just do, do what they require. Now, not all Muslims are that well versed on many things in the Quran or think think much about matters of theology. Again, they just do the five pillars. And that's sufficient to at least identify one as a Muslim. Some concluding thoughts. Let me close tonight by saying that there are really two Islams. Uh, there is the Islam of peace and there is the Islam of jihad. Now, depending on which Muslim faction you're talking to or which individual you're talking to, you'd get different answers. And that's another aspect that makes Islam so confusing to Westerners. You see, folks, the early writings of Muhammad from Mecca tend to be more gentle and promoting peace and good works. 
in the earlier writings or the majority of the writings in the Quran. Uh, but, but let me say in the surahs between the earlier writings and later writings, there is no chronological, uh, that's one thing confusing about the Quran. It's not, it's not in narrative stories like our Bible, and it's not chronological, so it's hard to tell sometimes the earlier writings from the later writings. The majority of the Quran is the earlier writings from, from Mecca that are more gentle in promoting peace and good works. But remember what happened to him there. He was run out of Mecca and fled to Medina. And once in Medina, Muhammad became more militant uh, both there in Medina and as he went back to conquer Mecca. And so the later writings that come out of Medina are the more militant writings that the terrorist groups are utilizing. And again, you'd find anywhere from, some would say, anywhere from 109 um, to 164 of the verses in various surahs would promote this violence. Now, complicating the matter for peace-loving Muslims is that if a later surah says one thing and an earlier surah says another, they're supposed to go with the later surah. So the jihadists are taking advantage of this. There, there's an identity crisis within Islam. You know, some people want to compare this. They, they, it's not a direct um, orange, to, orange to orange comparison. The Old Testament where the Jews were to go in and... and, and take over Canaan. That was for a specific time at a specific place for a purpose. And in, in the Koran, the, the jihadist verses are open-ended and apply to any time, any place. No limit. I think one could safely say that the majority of Muslims today are more moderate and peace-loving. One thing that can complicate that, their doctrine of tekiah, uh or deception to, to claim they're peace-loving and want to identify with Western society and, and be more secular in the sense of separation in church and state. But then when they gain the upper hand in numbers, there can be a radical shift and the more militant elements or the more controlling elements of Sharia take over. I think the challenge of the moderate Muslims in the West is truly that they are going to have to take a more definite and costly stand against the more militant elements of Islam. And folks, until that happens more comprehensively, I don't see an end to the misunderstandings. I don't see an end to the mistrust. Now, we'll talk later about witnessing to Muslims, but for now, let me, let me close, kind of like Paul tonight, really, you know, how Paul says, finally, 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 in, in closing tonight, and, and it's a while before I close tonight, but anyway, I'm almost done. But let me close tonight by saying that in our evangelistic attempts, we need to help Muslims understand the biblical concept uh, that the God of the Bible is a God who makes himself known. Help them understand what we mean by the doctrine of the Trinity. Again, for us to talk about the Trinity, they're convinced we serve three gods instead of one Godhead with three distinct personalities. Just about everything they teach about Jesus in some way or another is in conflict with the gospel accounts. And as we talked about the scriptures earlier that they do accept the gospels, the gospel accounts, they respect that that's at least a platform that we can use to talk to them about. So that would be a place to start. 
you know, sitting down and saying, well, let's go through the Gospels and see what the New Testament does in fact teach about Jesus. Also, the biblical presentation of salvation, you would hope, would be a refreshing presentation to a Muslim. Because, folks, keep in mind, a, a Muslim is hoping against all hope that one day when he gets to the end of his life, that he can stand there. Before entering paradise, you know, we'd say heaven, they talk about paradise. He's hoping against hope that when he stands there. You see, a lot of times too, let me, let me back up and say this. A lot of times in, in their prayers, and they'll even talk to them, a, 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 a good angel sitting on one shoulder and a, a demon on the other. And, and they're, one's recording all the bad deeds and one's recording all the good deeds. So there's this constant record keeping that they're, they're thinking is, is going on. And, and they're going to stand there at the gates of paradise one day and all of their life is going to be put on a scale and they're just so hoping that their good is going to outweigh the bad. But they never, ever know. And isn't that sad? Isn't it sad that they don't have a concept of, of God sending His Son to be our Savior, dying on the cross, dying in our stead for our sin? They don't have a concept of that. They don't have a concept of knowing God and peace and forgiveness and love and that they can have the assurance of going to heaven. That's some avenues where you can begin to talk to a Muslim. Now next week, I'm going to talk more about their theology and more about reaching the Muslims.